0: This is The Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution
1: today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to The Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 82nd episode of the program. Today is February 17th, and before we get started, I want to thank these individuals for making this show possible. So we have Daphne and Alan Brule, Jennifer Kingman, Tom and Diane Golding of Golding Fiber Tools, Carlos Acosta, Greg Hodges, Linda Koenigsberg, user F5sect, And Ryan Froelich, and he wanted me to share this quote with all of you. The comfort zone is a beautiful place, but nothing grows there. And I think that that is... Just the perfect quote that we all needed to hear. So thank you so much for that uh, quote, Ryan. So look, these people are supporting the show either by becoming Patreon patrons, members on humanistreport.com, or by simply submitting a donation through PayPal. So if you'd also like to support the Humanist Report podcast, you can visit the links down below, or you could support the show quite a bit by simply just liking and sharing our videos. So on today's episode, we've got a big show. So first... I'm going to talk about the DNC chair race and how DNC chair candidate Sam Ronan is making waves throughout the progressive community, and why Tom Perez cannot become the DNC chair. Also, DNC insiders are annoyed with the progressives who've been calling them and telling them who to vote for. And additionally, Keith Ellison finally took off the gloves to call out Tom Perez. I'll tell you why. And I'll talk about how Democrats are using Bernie Sanders for their own gain I'll also provide you with an overview of Trump's first month as president, as well as the media's reignited Russian hysteria and why I think that's actually a problem. I'll talk about why mainstream media all of a sudden is feeling the burn. And finally, I'll talk about how Republicans are still being lambasted by constituents in town halls across the country. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in because I want to make sure uh, we get to all of these stories, uh, particularly the ones relating to the DNC chair race, because we've got one week left. And I want to make sure that going into this election, even though we don't vote, we have all the information that we need to make sure uh, that we know the implications of the result, whatever the DNC votes on. Uh, So let's go ahead and jump in. So for the most part, DNC chair candidate Keith Ellison has played nice in the DNC chair race. And this is to his own detriment, honestly, because many of his supporters, the more ardent progressive supporters like myself, we've wanted him to kind of be more critical of the Democratic Party establishment, but he hasn't done that. He's tried to play nice. But finally, Keith Ellison is taking the gloves off, and he actually has some criticism for Tom Perez. So according to the Washington Post, in a letter sent to members of the Democratic National Committee, Representative Keith Ellison is accusing a DNC chair rival of misleading committee members to give the impression that the race was surging toward his opponent. One of the other great candidates for this race released an unverifiable public whip count earlier this week, Ellison said in the letter. You received a voicemail, email, and a text message trying to make the race sound like it's over. And the goal is clear to exert pressure on you. We chose not to engage in the same tactics because we believe you deserve the respect to make your own decision without a finger on the scale. However, I feel compelled to respond. We are very confident in our whip count and are in an excellent position to win next week." Ellison's letter did not mention Thomas Perez, but two days ago the former Labor Secretary released a memo claiming that 180 of the DNC's 447 members had endorsed him, putting him just 44 votes away from victory. At At the February 25th election in Atlanta. That rankled Ellison's team, which said it believed that some of the members counted by Perez were still up for grabs. Later, as the letter circulated on Twitter, Perez's spokeswoman, Hinojosa, asked why Ellison was spending his time harping about whip counts. "'Trump is trying to destroy our country, and dreamers are being detained, but instead some are arguing about how high our whip count is,' she wrote." And this is the same tactic that we've seen all along. Uh Perez doesn't want to address his criticism, he just wants to pivot to Donald Trump. And she talks about dreamers being deported. Uh what did President Obama do while Tom Perez was labor secretary? President Obama was the deporter in chief. And this is what Tom Perez had to say about that. <laughs> Oh, that's right. He didn't say shit about it because Tom Perez doesn't really care. He's using this to distract people from the criticism that he's receiving that is justified. Now, make no mistake about it. This is a typical establishment trick. They want to demoralize people uh, and think that the race is over. So that way they just fall in line and support the person who's going to win. So that way, you know, he doesn't clean house when he gets into the DNC. It's really disgusting. And it's a way that, you know, Tom Perez is trying to tip the scales in favor of himself, just like Debbie Wasserman Schultz tipped the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton. We're calling people out for rigging the primary against Bernie. And here he is trying to rig the DNC chair race. This is just unbelievable. And this guy has an actual chance of really winning. And if he's the DNC chair, oh my God, this is going to There's going to be hell to pay. Let's just put it that way. We're all going to be bombarding the DNC with calls because this decision is it's really important. As I stated before in a different segment, this will not just determine the future of the Democratic Party. The outcome of this election will determine whether or not the Democratic Party has a future at all. Because if you make Tom Perez the DNC chair, someone who's already hated by half the party, you will face resistance. With Tom Perez, we're getting the same thing. I mean, we saw how people tried to demoralize Bernie Sanders supporters when it comes to the Associated Press. For example, calling the race for Hillary Clinton when people were still waiting in line voting for Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. We saw how... Bernie Sanders supporters were so demoralized because even before anyone cast their vote, they thought that there was no chance that Bernie would win because of superdelegates. I mean, when it comes to New Hampshire, Bernie Sanders won in a landslide, but yet, when you factor in superdelegates, well, Hillary Clinton still took away more delegates. So this is what they try to do to progressives. They make it seem as though it's impossible and they can't win, and then people internalize it and they think, well, maybe it is impossible, so I might as well either stay home or just vote for the person who's going to win because everyone else likes that person more it's not right. And Tom Perez is really shady for doing this. And honestly, he's lucky that Keith Ellison is being so nice to him. If I were Keith Ellison, I would be raising hell about this and making a big fuss because, and look, the letter is great, but I think that keith ellison is being too nice and bernie sanders was too nice and these are you know some of the few criticisms that i have about progressive leaders who i actually like stop playing nice the democratic party is doing everything that they can to smear you and defame you it's time to take off the gloves and actually sling mud back at them like they've been doing to you so i mean i'll just say this if tom perez wins the democratic party is done and the resistance that they're going to face is going to be monumental we will call them every single day At a recent DNC chair forum, the candidates were asked to address some of the mistakes that the DNC made in 2016. Now, even though I think that most of the responses were adequate, the ideal response would have been that the DNC disenfranchised their own base in 2016 at the behest of Hillary Clinton and they grew exponentially more corporatist. But most candidates did not actually address this. So, for example, Sally Boynton Brown talked about the need to support small businesses, Jamie Harrison said that we've neglected uh, some of the states and we need a 50-state strategy. Tom Perez espoused more platitudes and stated that Democrats only attacked Trump and offered no real message. I actually agree with that. Uh, Ray Buckley said that Democrats spend too much money on advertising and that money could have been used to hire organizers. And Keith Ellison correctly said that we abandoned working people. That's also true. Now, I think that all of these are acceptable answers, and I agree with every single one of the candidates here. But there were two answers that really stood out to me. The first one came from Jemma Green, and she actually touched on what I wanted her to touch on. I wanted her to touch on how the DNC betrayed their own base in 2016. So this is what she said specifically.
2: We have to have a DNC leader who is willing to speak truth to power and say very specifically, I acknowledge the wounds of Bernie Sanders supporters who feel that they were left out of this election unfairly. And I also acknowledge the wounds of Hillary Clinton supporters who feel that sexism and misogyny has been too rampant in our party and in the media and how she was treated. And we have to have a leader who will speak truth to power to this institution of the Democratic Party and say we ourselves have sexism and racism and bigotry within our own ranks, and that we have too much complexity. So to Andrew, your question, the Obama years were great in lifting us out of recession, but they decimated the DNC. The Clinton campaign? treated this institution with disrespect and so we need a leader who is going to speak truth to power
1: the clinton campaign treated this institution with disrespect look i've been really critical of Jemu in the past but i have to give her credit where credit is due That's correct. So, I mean, the thing that's strange is that this is a complete 180 because previously, Jammu, she dodged this question at every single turn. She refused to address the rigging of the primary. And, I mean, this is surprising because Jammu Green is someone who was a former advisor to Hillary Clinton. She considers herself a friend of Hillary Clinton. Now, she also said we need a DNC chair that will acknowledge the wounds of Bernie Sanders supporters who feel that they were left out of the election. Now, uh... This is the first time I've ever heard her address any sort of bias towards Bernie Sanders supporters whatsoever because, again, anytime this was brought up to her, she was wishy-washy. She dodged the question. So I think this is great. Now, would I would have liked her to go into more detail about specifically how she thinks— that uh, the DNC disenfranchised Bernie Sanders supporters? Absolutely, but to be fair to Jemu Green here, they didn't have much time to actually answer the question. Now, there's another part in here that I want to uh, acknowledge where I'm critical of Jemu Green. So she states that she wants to acknowledge the wounds of Hillary Clinton supporters who feel as though sexism and misogyny is too rampant in our own Now, look, I'm not going to deny the existence of misogyny and sexism towards Hillary Clinton, and I'm certainly not going to deny that it doesn't exist in our own party, but you have to be really careful as to what she's saying here, because that whole notion that, you know, uh, the Democratic Party was sexist towards Hillary Clinton— well, that's an attack on progressives. So, for example, when Hillary Clinton was attending a private fundraiser where the tickets cost more than $33,000, well, there were a bunch of Sanders supporters who protested her by throwing 1000 individual dollar bills at her motorcade. Now, this was to protest how Hillary Clinton only allowed wealthy elites to buy access to her. And Clinton supporters, in turn, alleged that this was sexist because they were throwing dollar bills at a woman and it was demeaning and degrading. So, I mean, that's one example as to how Clinton supporters tried to demonize Bernie Sanders and how the establishment tried to demonize Bernie Sanders and suggest that that was an act of sexism when really uh, it was the lower class calling out an elite, saying that you're not representing us, it's because of money, and they're making a statement. Now, there was another instance where Hillary Clinton also tried to further this narrative. She said that Bernie Sanders, or she implied that Bernie Sanders was sexist because he said that she needs to stop yelling when it comes to the issue about guns. Now, Bernie Sanders also said the same exact thing to Martin O'Malley that he said to Hillary Clinton uh, that made her accuse him of sexism. He said that when it comes to the gun debate, this comes down to a difference that you can see between the rural communities of the United States. States and um, the urban communities. And we need to stop yelling at each other and come together and compromise. Uh, and she said, well, you know, when men say that women are yelling, we're not yelling, we're just passionate. And she implied that that was sexist. Again, this is completely taking Bernie Sanders out of context and trying to misrepresent what he, what he was actually saying so she could suggest that he was sexist. But if you're honestly trying to further the narrative that progressives dislike Hillary Clinton because they're sexist, Well, I reject that. So I would like to kind of pick Jamu's brain a little bit more on this and get her take as to what she means uh, specifically by that. And look, she agreed to come on the show. She actually brought it to my attention and said, look, she's happy to answer any questions. So I responded saying, yes, I would love to have you on the show, even though I think that she's from the Hillary wing of the party and I'm from the Bernie wing. I think that this could be a really constructive conversation. She has not responded to me, even though she seemed to be uh, pretty enthusiastic about coming on the show. So look, Jamu, the offer, it stands. I think that it would be great for you to come on the show, but I mean, time is running out. The DNC chair race is a week away from the time that I'm recording this. So I mean, if you want to come on the show, I would love to have you. Now, I thought that that was an acceptable response. However, when it came to Sam Ronan... Like he always does, he answered the question exactly how it needed to be answered. And he even called out Jemmo Green in the process. Take a look.
3: So I'm going to take the gloves off a little bit. You talked about truth to power. I was the one that started that in Houston. You want to talk about telling people that the DNC is the only people who get to decide the fate and future of millions of Americans. I believe you said each of you get to carry the weight and burden of 150,000 lives. That is an awesome responsibility. And it's one that goes and alludes to the superdelegates. Let's take that word for example, superdelegates. It is greater than a regular delegate. That means that those superdelegates, I believe it was around 500 of them, had the same weight as 25% of the entire voting base. Millions of votes. That is undemocratic. You wanna talk about truth to power? I am the only candidate at this table who has sworn to not take corporate and lobbyist money. That that is not the way we do business in the Democratic Party. You want to talk about more truth to power. We need open primaries. We need open debates. We need to get rid of exclusivity. I've been hashing off every time somebody at this table has borrowed from my Houston and my Detroit and my Phoenix remarks and my interviews. Uh, Tom, I think, has adopted my policies. You want to talk about leadership, that is leadership, leading by example. We have been hurting as a country. Berniecrats, millennials, progressives, conservatives, libertarians. We have been at war with each other and we've been hurting for decades and we've been waiting for a person to step up and say enough is enough. We are Americans. We are Americans first and foremost. We need to talk. We need to talk with each other. We need to compromise. That is politics. And until we do that, none of these plans, none of these people, Thank none of you, these Sam. things we're trying to Ray do Bob will Green. work.
1: Wow. So that's how you answer that question, folks. So, I mean, when it comes to the question as to why Gemu Green changed her position, I initially speculated, well, maybe she's, you know, listening to the criticism of progressives. But really, Sam Ronan here is implying that he's actually changing the narrative. And I think he's right because even uh, Tom Perez talked about the rigging of the primary, even though he walked it back immediately uh, after Sam Ronan said it. So Sam Ronan is influencing the discussion among the DNC chair candidates in a really positive way. And look, he kept a list of any time one of the other candidates used his rhetoric. And he even said, I think that Tom has adopted my policies. I laughed out loud when he did that. That that was phenomenal. So Sam Ronan, he's killing it. And some of my viewers reached out and they said, Mike, I'm really worried about Sam Ronan, because even though I support him, I'm afraid that this is going to split votes between uh, people in the DNC, between Keith Ellis and whatnot. But look, here's the thing. Uh, I think that Sam Ronan Uh, This isn't a traditional election, so the DNC members, I'm not too worried about them splitting votes because they're likely going to speak with each other about the vote process. So, if progressives are planning on voting for Ellison within the DNC, I'm sure that they would come together and talk about uh, Ronan and Keith Ellison and make a deal. And also, I think that Ronan's presence is really important because he is influencing the discussion in a very positive way. We've seen it here. So, Sam Ronan, dude, you brought down the House. That was amazing. That's how you answer that question. And I think that he's really the only candidate that will hold people within the DNC accountable if they want to betray progressives. So, you know, my hat goes off to Sam Ronan. Uh, And, you know, honestly, I will give credit to all the DNC chair candidates for answering this question adequately. But I mean, Sam Ronan, he is the Bernie Sanders of this race. So there's a DNC chair candidate named Ray Buckley, and more and more, I think that he is proving to progressives that he is willing to be introspective and talk about where the Democratic Party previously failed. Now, this is someone who made a horrible first impression on me because at the first DNC debate, well, he refused to raise his hand when he was asked whether or not the DNC tipped the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton against Bernie Sanders. So I'm not going to forget that. However, with that being said, I will be fair to him and I want you guys to hear him out because he does have some criticisms of Hillary Clinton and Debbie Wasserman Schultz that I think are actually pretty sound. So when it comes to um, Hillary Clinton and how she ran her campaign, here's what he thinks Hillary Clinton did wrong.
4: When we're running 100 millions of dollars worth of commercials, telling the voters that oh, our opponent is offensive. When you're worrying about your damn paycheck, you're worrying about your job, you're worrying about where you're gonna live, if your kids are ever gonna go to school, they don't really give a crap about if the president is an insult dog. The reality is, we did not offer a positive message to anyone that I'm related to. They did not, we did not offer a message to my neighbors. We did not offer a message to the people in Indiana or Ohio or Pennsylvania or Kentucky. What we did is we said, how offensive.
1: Cool. So I totally agree with that. That was not too bad uh, because I think he's right. Yes, it was the case that Hillary Clinton, her campaign focused too much on Donald Trump and she failed to deliver a message to voters as to what she would do. You know, all she had was platitudes, you know, a stronger together. And, and that doesn't resonate with voters. I'm With Her does not tell voters who are hurting right now what you're going to do for them. So I like that he's willing to call out Hillary Clinton and people within the Democratic Party and talk about where they went wrong. Now, in an interview with Nomiki Konst of TYT Politics, he tried to redeem himself for not raising his hand at that first DNC debate, and he talked about what the DNC did to tip the scales and what Debbie Wasserman Schultz did wrong that harmed and disenfranchised Bernie Sanders supporters. We're
4: past the discussion of whether there was a thumb on the scale or not. Right. Because there was an appearance of the thumb on the scale. So if, there's, if you're doing something that creates the appearance... You might, it's just as bad.
1: Mm. So you
4: can't do anything that even creates that sort of appearance. And, and so I, I don't think we'll ever know definitively. Right. Uh, but the fact is, is that there were certainly more um, opportunities to have that appearance. And that was wrong.
1: So I think that after not raising his hand and uh, admitting that the primary was rigged against Bernie Sanders, I do think that that answer was a step in the right direction. However, I'm not willing to give him full credit here because I want you to be clear uh, about what he's doing. I want to be clear about what he's doing, that is he's giving himself some wiggle room. See, he doesn't want to unequivocally state that the primary was rigged against Bernie Sanders because that would certainly make the establishment upset. But at the same time, he does want to pander to Bernie Sanders because we are an integral part of the Democratic Party and he has to hear us out. So I think that this is kind of a sneaky move that he's doing here and he's trying to walk a fine line between you know, trying to pander to Bernie supporters and also pander to, to the establishment. So this is still a disappointing response because facts are facts. I don't care if you piss off the establishment or piss off the Hillary Clinton wing of the party uh, by admitting the fact that That the DNC did create rules that would favor Hillary Clinton. Now, I don't need to get into all the details right now, but he did imply that Debbie Wasserman Schultz was not neutral. So, I mean, it's kind of contradictory because he's not really saying unequivocally that the primary is rigged, but he is saying that the DNC did violate their own charter uh, inadvertently. So, if Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was not neutral.
4: And as the chair of the First Nation primary, I'm absolutely committed to being sure that we are 100% neutral. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have done that, whether it was walking Bernie in to make sure that he got to be on the ballot or it's making sure that the rooms always had the same percentage of, you know, we would block the sale of tickets to our Mm -hmm. dinners uh, to, to known supporters so that... Neither side could overwhelm the other at the events. I mean, we really worked very hard, uh, to be fair, as as possible.
1: Now, I actually do believe him when he does say he's committed to 100% neutrality because he actually was neutral during the uh, New Hampshire primary, and he even called out Pete Buttgeek for not being neutral. So ABC News explains the longtime chair of the state party in New Hampshire, Raymond Buckley, went on the offensive against Buttgeek on Saturday and chided the mayor for having backed Clinton. Buckley emphasized that after he stayed neutral in the 2016 race, Sanders won his state by a landslide. So I think that's a great response. I do believe that he's going to be neutral because he was in fact neutral uh, in 2016. However, the DNC's bias against Bernie Sanders goes further than a lack of neutrality. I want to know what he thinks about the debates and about closed primaries. Well, here's what he had to say about that.
4: The debates, um, uh, the chair should never have that sort of authority. Mm -hmm. I think it needs to be put into the role of the full executive committee. Mm -hmm. Over 40 members from all walks of life, they should have that authority of determining what the debate schedule is. I think at the very least, you would have people that were then agreeing with you versus the situation that happened last time where she was standing alone. I think the caucuses, uh, I think that the enthusiasm that folks had for the candidates, and they would show up, and the state parties were not capable. Remember, state parties weren't getting the support. So many of them have two or three employees, and you're literally dealing with tens of thousands of people showing up. How could you process all of them? How could you get them all involved? And so it looked chaotic. It looked crazy, mm-hmm. uh, and it just didn't didn't work. And I traveled to Maine to help out. I traveled to Nevada to help out. And the DNC had a position of they didn't want to get involved. Well, I think the DNC needs to go in there and supplement mm-hmm. to make sure that. Everyone gets, this is about voting rights, as far as I'm concerned.
3: Uh, Everyone, how can you say that you're for voting rights on a national level when yeah. in New York, for instance, a judge just ordered <coughs> mm-hmm. and said that, that you know, people was voting, their their mm-hmm. ballots during the primary were eliminated. And that's mm-hmm. against the law. I mean, this is, that's happened all over the country. Arizona, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, my grandmother's been voting mm-hmm. in Arizona since 1946, mm-hmm. was denied at the polls during the primary because she wasn't a Democrat, they said
4: yeah i mean it, it's you know and, and i we have a different system in new hampshire
3: right.
4: uh we do have voter registration uh, unlike uh, there are many states that don't have any voter registration but in new hampshire we do uh, but we allow any independent or unregistered person because you can we have same-day voter registration uh you could wake up later, late in the afternoon, and decide, you know what, I'm going to go vote. And they go, they register, and they get to vote. Uh, And you take a Democrat ballot, you become declared a Democrat for that time period, and on your way out you sign a postcard saying that you want to revert to being an independent. It's that simple. Hmm. Um, I think, now other people may disagree, but I think having the more amount of people involved in your primary and your nominating process means that you're going to have those people listening to your candidates going into the general election. I'm not obsessed about who's a registered Democrat in New Hampshire. I, I, I really uh, gave up uh, thinking about that years ago when I, I said, As long as they're voting Democratic, what do
1: I care if they're actually a registered Democrat? So, I mean, when it comes to closed primaries, he's saying the right things. He's logically sound. When it comes to the debate schedule, I'll say the same thing that I told Sam Ronan. I want him to commit to more debates and not less. I don't necessarily – I mean, I appreciate the fact that they're willing to make the debate schedule – fair and they want to determine it uh, based on fair standards standards but i want a dnc chair to commit right now to 25 debates no less so you know he's he is saying the right things and i think certainly at this point he's not the worst candidate, but he's certainly not the best. So I would probably rank Ray Buckley as my third choice. So number one is definitely Sam Ronan, hands down. And then a distant second you have Keith Ellison. And then a distant third you have Ray Buckley. So I still think that Sam Ronan or Keith Ellison would be the better choices. Uh but, you know, Ray Buckley, I think that he's done a lot to regain the trust of progressives after having a really rocky start at the beginning of the DNC chair race. So I just wanted to give you guys some information about Ray Buckley because I think that we need to know about these people who want to be the leader of the resistance to Donald Trump. So, you know, um, there you have it. I'll allow you guys to make your own decision. So out of all the potential DNC chair candidates, I think that the worst one by far is former Labor Secretary Tom Perez because he's demonstrated time and again that he's not a leader and he certainly doesn't want to address the problems that the Democratic Party has. And if you don't think that the Democratic Party has any problems, then you will not be an effective chair. You're not going to be an effective leader of the party. Now, there's several reasons as to why Tom Perez should not be the DNC chair, I'm going to focus on the most important ones. So first of all, he's wishy-washy. Just last week, he admitted that he was listening to the criticism of Bernie Sanders supporters, and he said, look, they've told us loud and clear that the primary was rigged, and they're right. It was rigged. And then just hours later, he backpedaled. He said, you know, actually, the primary wasn't rigged. Everything I said, you know, scrap it. Hillary Clinton won fair and square. So that's the type of leadership you're going to get. He caters to a certain portion of the party, and he falls over himself, to make sure that the establishment is happy. And that's really frustrating. And if he does become the DNC chair, then he's demonstrated time and again that his only job will be to make sure that the establishment is in fact satisfied with him and to make sure that the status quo is maintained. Now, the fact that his only job will be to protect the Democratic Party establishment became really evident when he was met with resist Trump protesters who asked him loud and clear, they heckled him, but it was necessary. And they asked him three times, would you support the primary challengers of corporatist Democrats and centrist Democrats who are willing to cave to Donald Trump at every turn uh, people like Joe Manchin for example and I'm summarizing as to what they said uh, but here's a video of that
2: you to supporting those primary challengers who run that We're very lucky that Tom Perez gave us his time tonight. So let's not put him in a difficult. Now
1: that protester never got an answer, even though she asked him the question three times, and it was a pretty simple uh, yes or no question. Do you support primarying the Democrats who are Democrats in name only? He wouldn't answer, and it's because we know his answer. Tom Perez would not. And I like how at the end there, um, it got cut off, but the host said, you know, I don't want to put Tom Perez in a difficult position. <laughs> and you know, it, this is just ridiculous. He wants to be the leader of the Democratic Party. I think we have to put him in difficult positions. We need to ask him the hard questions, because if we don't, then how are we going to know if he is going to be capable of leading the Democratic Party? And look, Tom Perez is someone who gets startled pretty easily. He's literally run away from journalists who have asked him if he would condemn the illegal Israeli settlements. He refuses to answer such simple questions like that. It's absolutely just amazing to me. Now, additionally, another problem with Tom Perez is that he absolutely refuses to address the fact that the Democratic Party is divided. He wants to bury his head in the sand and pretend that we're all unified. How concerned are you that this campaign
0: is turning into a proxy fight between sort of the Obama-Clinton wing? which people say you represent, and the Sanders wing that many people believe Keith Ellison represents, and that this is this is going to hurt both of you uh, if this is how this breaks down.
5: Listen, we're, we're, every candidate, uh, we, we have a great relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congressman Ellison is a, a, a fantastic member of Congress, and we've worked together. And when i talk to voting members and when i talk to uh you know folks out there rank and file democrats what they tell me is we need to focus on the future we have the existential threats
1: of of donald trump now he also refuses to say whether or not he would ban lobbyist contributions to the dnc and when confronted with a question about how the democratic party has abandoned the working class and only caters to elites well he just simply didn't have an answer and you
0: saw in this election what happens when people get frustrated enough that they say i'm not going to take this aristocracy, it's got to be broken somehow, in both parties. And I think that's what the Trump message was that that uh, echoed so strongly in these flyover communities.
5: What do you say to that? Well, you know, I think the Democratic Party does need to make House calls. Uh, we have to be the party in all 50 states and the, and the territories and mm-hmm. for Democrats abroad. And I think we need to communicate that message of of uh, economic security. I worked for Ted Kennedy. Uh, his message was twofold. The Democratic Party has always been about pathways to the middle class. It's always been about good jobs. It's always been about Social Security, Medicare. And the Republicans have been about privatizing uh, Social Security and voucherizing Medicare. We've been about lifting wages. And we've also been that party of inclusion and opportunity. I believe our diversity is our greatest strength. And I believe that when we uh, put hope on the ballot, we win and when we allow others to put fear on the ballot we don't do so hot okay that sounded like
0: a lot of great slogans but that still doesn't get at the problem that the democratic party has branding wise in michigan wisconsin iowa ohio well part of that problem chuck
1: is that we we um haven't made house calls there look tom if chuck todd is calling you out because you're using too many platitudes then I think you're using too many fucking platitudes, dude. Now his response to uh, the party abandoning the working class was, "Well, we need to make more house calls," and he said it twice. And I mean, sure, that's part of it, but I mean, you have to cleanse the party of the virus that is corporate money, and you don't want to do that, Tom. Now, most importantly, we all talk about how the Democratic Party establishment—they put their finger on the scale for Hillary Clinton. Now, it's important that we're all reminded of the fact that Tom Perez is part of that. He will was implicated in the DNC emails uh, when WikiLeaks revealed that the DNC colluded with Hillary Clinton's campaign to destroy and sabotage Bernie Sanders' campaign. Tom Perez was part of that. So, after the Iowa caucus, Tom Perez literally emailed John Podesta and congratulated him and said, they said high turnout would hurt us, and we won nonetheless. So, I mean, by using words like we and us, he's unequivocally backing Hillary Clinton and thinks that he's part of Hillary Clinton's team. Now, this was during the time when Obama's administration purported to be neutral, but I mean, here you have Tom Perez from Obama's administration in cahoots with Clinton's campaign, and that's not even the worst part, though. So, since Bernie Sanders was doing well among young voters, Tom Perez advised John Podesta to create the narrative that Bernie Sanders only does well among young white voters. And this was one of the many ways that the establishment tried to subtly suggest that Bernie Sanders was racially insensitive. I mean, you saw David Brock later state that Bernie Sanders didn't care about African-American voters because one of his ads wasn't diverse enough. So, I mean, Tom Perez... He's everything that's wrong with the Democratic Party. And if he's the new leader of the Democratic Party, they're going to be in for a really rude awakening. They're going to lose a lot of voters. And the scary part is that Tom Perez is claiming that he secured 180 of the 224 needed votes to become the DNC chair. Now, I don't know how how true this is. I think it's probably overstated. But I mean, I think that the chances of him becoming the DNC chair, they're certainly high. So let me tell everyone in the DNC this. If you make Tom Perez the DNC chair, you're going to lose out on a generation of voters. Progressives will not come back to the party. Dem-Exiters will not come back to the party. So when you make that vote, choose wisely because this vote isn't just going to determine the future of the Democratic Party. This vote will determine whether or not the Democratic Party will have a future at all. Over the course of the last month, progressives have been calling into the DNC and calling their DNC representatives in their own state to encourage them to support the candidate of their choice, namely Sam Ronan, Keith Ellison, or one of the two. Um, Now, you'd think that, you know, in receiving all these calls, members of the DNC would be excited about the enthusiasm for the future of the Democratic Party, but They've actually recently vocalized how annoyed they are with the fact that we dared to call in and urge them to support the candidate who we favor. I'm not joking. This is a real story. So they're saying that progressives are using, quote, aggressive tactics to elect Keith Ellison, for example. So the Washington Times explains the Democratic Party activists who tried to unsuccessfully sink Hillary Clinton's nomination at last year's convention are at it again pestering national party members ahead of next week's vote on a new chairman. They say the phone calls to lobby for Representative Keith Ellison, the choice of progressives over Tom Perez, viewed as the establishment choice, are out of control. It was over the top and I contacted Keith and Keith tried to stop it to his credit. It took a while, said Marcel Grohn, chairman of the Pennsylvania Democrats. I want their enthusiasm and energy, but I do want it harnessed. I am not interested in anarchy. Mr. Grohn said he is a fan of both Mr. Ellison and Mr. Perez, the Obama administration's former labor secretary, but the pro-Ellison effort convinced him to go public with his support from Mr. Perez. Let's say you were completely uncommitted, he said. You don't want 300 people calling you and telling you what to do. David O'Brien, an undecided DNC member from Massachusetts, said he has been on the receiving end of pro-Ellison emails and phone calls and said they have picked up speed ahead of the February 25th vote. Mr. O'Brien said he is torn between Mr. Perez and Mr. Ellison and shared a recent conversation in which an Ellison backer told him it would be an injustice if the Minnesota congressman does not get the job. Mr. O'Brien said Mr. Ellison has a great platform and his supporters would be better off focusing on that rather than dwelling on the past. The passion for Mr. Ellison was on display at a recent DNC forum in Baltimore where his backers had the loudest presence and also jeered Mr. Perez to the dismay of some members. The heckling and all that has been going on since the convention, since the campaign, that is old, said Yvette Lewis, a DNC member from Maryland who pledged her support for Mr. Perez following the event. I don't know if it hurts or helps anyone. I just know that it needs to stop. This is unbelievable to me. Unbelievable. You guys work for the Democratic Party. It seems like you don't want to be very Democratic because when people call... You go to the press and you talk about how annoyed you are and how it needs to stop from all these calls. I'm sorry, but you should be kissing our asses right now. You're in no position to criticize progressives after what you did to them in 2016. So the fact that these idiots have the audacity to now talk to the press about how irritated they are and how annoying we are. Too fucking bad. We're going to keep doing it. And if you do vote for Perez, if you don't like the phone calls now, best believe that we will be doing a lot more phone calls if you make the bad decision because we will vocalize how annoyed we are with you. And I just want to read this quote back to you. So the first guy who we mentioned, Groan, said, let's say you were completely uncommitted and you don't want people calling and telling you what to do. So he's acting like a petulant child. He says that he supported both of them, and he didn't, he didn't really know he was torn. But once people called, just despite them, he said, fuck you, I'm going to support Perez. Is that how it's going to be? Is that really how it's going to be? You're going to act like a petulant child and spite the people who are calling you? Now, they said in the article, the title, which this was a biased article, by the way, if you couldn't tell. The title said that, uh, you know, they're getting annoyed with our aggressive tactics. There was no mention of any aggressive tactics in, anywhere in this article. The tactics are recalling. We're saying it would be an injustice after what you did in 2016 to not give Keith Ellison the job. How? Where's the aggression? How is that aggressive? I think that what you did was an act of aggression. You defrauded Bernie Sanders supporters and progressives. That's aggressive. And then we had another DNC member say that, you know, this the heckling has got to stop. I don't know if it's effective. Well, look, the reason why we heckle politicians is if they're not addressing our concerns. Tom Perez was heckled because he refuses to address our concerns. He's literally run away from multiple journalists because he refuses to answer simple questions. So the reason why he's being heckled is because he is not providing us with sufficient answers and he wants to lead the Democratic Party. And furthermore, I'm consistent on this issue. I'm actually in support of heckling. So for example, I actually got a lot of heat from progressives back in the uh, the beginning of the 2016 primary when Bernie Sanders was heckled at the Netroots Nation, Nation Conference because he just wasn't adequately addressing concerns of the Black Lives Matter activists, and it made him a better candidate. He released a criminal justice reform after that. So I think that you heckle politicians if you want them to respond to a specific question that you have. We shouldn't discourage this. Uh, what you should do, contrarily, is encourage politicians to actually answer the questions that will satisfy people who have a stake in the party, but you don't want to do that. You don't want to be democratic. You don't want to change. You don't want to represent the voters. You hate us. So when I say that the Democratic Party and the establishment and the DNC, they hate us, they hate progressives, they hold contempt towards progressives, there's evidence for that now. This is evidence of that. So I want to lay this out very clearly to the people who are annoyed with progressives who dare to call in and ask them to politely support the candidate of their choice. Um, shut up. We're going to do it anyway, and if you're annoyed with the calls now, just wait, because if you make the wrong decision and go with the establishment that failed, we will be calling to tell you how annoyed we are with you. Uh, And furthermore, if you keep shunning progressives, if you do what you did in 2016 to us again in 2017— You're not going to have a party left for you to betray. The voters who you keep fucking over are going to leave. You won't have any voters left and you're going to lose. And you are going to be responsible for Donald Trump again. A second term of Donald Trump, that's going to be on your hands. The first term's on your hands. And this is going to be on your hands as well. So, I mean, be thankful that we're annoying you in the first place because after what you did... You should be kissing our asses right now and begging voters to take interest in what the Democratic Party is doing, but you you really have the nerve to say that you're annoyed with us. Fuck off! So I previously speculated that the Democratic Party establishment, in their attempt to ostensibly embrace Bernie Sanders, well, they're actually just exploiting him for his popularity and actuality. Now, there are two stories that were released back-to-back that actually really demonstrate this point further. So there was one story where the Democratic establishment convened a meeting with Bernie Sanders and they basically tried to silence him. They said, Bernie, you are doing some damage to the party, you need to stop criticizing us, but now. On another hand, there's a story where the same corporate Democrats who tried to silence Bernie Sanders are basically telling him, you know what, shut up, Bernie Sanders, until we need you. And right now we need you because there are constituents in town halls across the country that are berating us. We're being lambasted by our own constituents because they're frustrated that we're willing to cave to Donald Trump. Bernie, will you please let them know who the real enemy is? It's Trump. It's not us. So I think that these stories demonstrate that the Democratic Party establishment They're just a bunch of bullies. So when it comes to them trying to silence Bernie, The Hill explains, Senator Chuck Schumer is trying to keep the peace in the Senate Democratic Caucus as Senator Bernie Sanders' aggressive effort to push the party left is giving some colleagues heartburn. The Senate Minority Leader convened a meeting last month between Sanders, a liberal stalwart, and a group of Democrats Sanders criticized for voting against an amendment he co-wrote to lower the cost of prescription drugs by allowing their importation from Canada. He said it was disappointing that 13 Senate Democrats didn't stand up to powerful special interests like the pharmaceutical industry. You cannot do that if you're in the leadership, said one senator who did not approve of Sanders' tactics and requested anonymity to speak frankly. Sanders told colleagues at the meeting that he did not intend to inflict any political damage, but declined to apologize for his policy positions according to a source familiar with the meeting. Democratic sources say Schumer convened the meeting to send a message to the Vermont senator. Play nice with others. Schumer was careful not to create the impression that Democrats were ganging up on Sanders. He invited fellow liberal Senator Jeff Merkley to sit in on the session, even though Merkley really had no part in the tiff. Now, I know that Chuck Schumer doesn't want this meeting to seem as though they're trying to gang up on Bernie Sanders, but that's exactly what they're trying to do. They want to do shitty things that harm the American people, yet they don't want to be called out on it. They don't like that Bernie Sanders is the one individual uh, that's liberal that's willing to criticize the Democratic Party. They want to be able to do terrible, corporatist, neoliberal things that benefit the pharmaceutical industry, uh, and they want to be able to get away with it. And now there's a specific reason why they don't want Bernie bernie sanders to criticize them it's because bernie sanders has a large platform with millions of progressives following him so when bernie sanders criticizes these corporatist democrats for voting with the pharmaceutical industry because of their own actions they're getting called out and now they want bernie sanders to come to their rescue so according to the washington post Senior Democratic lawmakers on Tuesday sought to stave off town hall protests from their own party, asking Senator Bernie Sanders to reach out and urge activists to redirect their anger at Republicans instead of at moderate Democratic lawmakers. The request came in a weekly meeting of top Democratic senators, according to a senator in attendance, over the past two weeks. Crowds and conflict hungry media crews have swarmed town halls and protested at congressional offices. Republicans have gotten the brunt of it, with several members escorted by police through lines of shouting protesters and some caught scrapping or rescheduling public events or leaving out back doors to dodge angry activists. But protesters have also gathered in blue states, marching to Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer's home in Brooklyn to demand the obstruction of Trump nominees and showing up at the offices of safe-seat Democrats to demand that they filibuster Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch. Such episodes spurred Democrats to ask Sanders for help, according to Senator Joe Manchin, who attended the meeting on Tuesday. They basically explained to Bernie, it looks like you could be the person that could calm down and make sure their energy and all this enthusiasm is directed in all the right, proper channels, Manchin said. Bernie has a voice, and if protesters want to be active, then direct them where the problem may be or where they anticipate a problem. Manchin insisted on Tuesday that the Democratic caucus is unified in not wanting to repeal the Affordable Care Act. It's unified. So why would protesters spend any energy on any member who's already committed to that? On Tuesday, a group of protesters in Maryland delivered valentines to the office of Senator Benjamin Cardin, who is up for re-election in 2018, with questions about why he was agreeing to meet with Gorsuch after many Republicans refused to meet with blocked Obama nominee Merrick Garland. They handed out candy hearts with slogans like, filibuster me and be my accountable Democrat, and a sign that read, roses are red, violets are blue, supporting Trump's cabinet picks makes you guilty too. So, I mean, this is the most absurd thing I've ever heard. Joe Manchin is someone who is the one Democrat who voted to approve Jeff Sessions as Attorney General. Jeff Sessions is a longtime racist. Republicans thought he was too racist in the Reagan era. Yet, a Democrat, a so-called Democrat, voted to approve Jeff Sessions, someone who's against civil rights, as Attorney General. And do you want to know what else Joe Manchin did along with Heidi Heitkamp? They voted to appoint scott pruitt to lead the epa scott pruitt is a climate denier he's a climate change denier he doesn't think global warming is actually occurring and they said yeah you know i'm okay with him leading the epa and yet joe manchin has the gall to ask bernie sanders you know hey bernie i love this enthusiasm but can you get him to direct it towards the real enemy donald trump well i've got bad news for you joe manchin bernie sanders already came to your rescue Bernie Sanders instructed Democrats how to not be corporatist. He led by example by not accepting campaign contributions from billionaires, unlike you, and you decided to not do that. You decided to not follow the lead of Bernie Sanders, and now you want to beg him to come to rescue you because of the shitty things that you did? Trump is definitely the enemy. I think that no progressive will deny that fact, but do you want to know who else is the enemy? The neoliberal corporatist Democrats that are so unpopular that their own base doesn't want to come out to support them. And this effectively led to Donald Trump being elected. So, you are responsible for Donald Trump because you don't represent the voters. So, voters aren't coming out to support you. So, you're responsible for Trump. So, you're also the enemy, buddy. And let me just tell you this, Joe Manchin. In 2018, your ass is gone. You will be primaried so quickly and progressives from around the country we're going to pour everything we can into the Justice Democrats campaign that's going to challenge you and beat you. So, I mean, this this whole story, it's completely absurd, and it really does communicate to me that, you know, my suspicions were correct. The Democratic Party, they're trying to exploit Bernie Sanders. They want to push him out front and get him to make the Democratic Party more popular, but... You know, they don't actually want to embrace what Bernie Sanders is saying. They want to do terrible things. They don't want to change anything. They just want to make it seem as though they're changing because they're, you know, embracing Bernie Sanders in terms of letting him speak. But they want to do shitty things and then have Bernie Sanders defend them. You're missing the point. It's time for you to leave office. If you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, you might be pleasantly surprised by the fact that mainstream media outlets all of a sudden seem to love Bernie Sanders. He's been uh, on MSNBC and CNN a lot more frequently. Now, the question is, why would they all of a sudden start to cover Bernie Sanders more often if during his campaign... They chose to air empty podiums of Donald Trump campaign events and basically gave Bernie Sanders zero coverage. So why all of a sudden do they want to care about Bernie Sanders and talk about Bernie Sanders? Well, Jordan Sheridan of TYT Politics, he penned an article for media that I thought was fantastic. And let me just say this, Jordan Sheridan is one of the best journalists in the country. So, I respect everything that he has to say, and I couldn't not share this story. So, here's what he states. He says CNN and others didn't cover Sanders because it wasn't in their financial interest to do so. This logic is ironic, since Sanders drew in the demographics that's been leaving cable news for years— Millennials, So, it's been a big surprise to see that now, all of a sudden, CNN can't get enough of Bernie. They did a town hall with him and now, by the looks of their promo commercials, are holding a heavyweight boxing match between Bernie Sanders and Senator Ted Cruz on the issue of healthcare. CNN has also booked Sanders much more consistently across platforms. Post-democratic primary. MSNBC has also suddenly come down with a bad case of feel the burn after recently holding their own town hall with him. Morning Joe co-hosts Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski recently revealed that they were trying to arrange a road trip following Sanders across the country. How interesting is it that once Sanders no longer has an electoral shot, CNN and MSNBC can't get enough? This is a brazen attempt to cash in on the most popular politician in America and his legions of young supporters after. Suppressing his rise and policy proposals when it actually mattered. And I know the trolls are already tweeting stop with your complaining, you're a sore loser, Bernie, bro. But this really isn't about Sanders, it's about the manipulative nature of our media. Decades ago, outlets like CNN actually adhered to journalistic principles. CNN abdicated all of this to grant Trump what he wanted, a reality TV campaign, and now it and others are breathlessly covering the reality TV presidency. They did so because it helped their ratings and profits at the expense of its viewer. All of this is a subtle attempt to deceive its audience into thinking someone like Sanders isn't a serious figure or candidate when they run for office or attempt to implement policy but give them more coverage when he poses no risk. Now, this is something that I've actually alluded to in the past, but in meme form. So, I mean, Jordan Sheridan took the words out of my mouth. And, you know, this corporate connection with media, I mean, that's the problem. So, if you have a corporate-controlled, a corporate-funded, a a corporate-owned media Well, then you change their goal. The goal of the media is to inform people so that way when they watch, they learn more and can make a more informed decision when they enter the voting booth. But with corporate media, what they want is to boost their ratings so that way they're more profitable and that way they can charge more for advertisements. So, I mean, would you think that uh, Goldman Sachs would feel comfortable advertising on CNN if they constantly talked about Bernie Sanders when Bernie Sanders was running and is saying, I'm going to get in and and, uh, send these crooks to jail? Well, of course not. They're not willing to shake up the status quo. They want everything to be the same where corporations are in charge. And look... Even though I complain about the mainstream media, this is making me more popular. It's making people like the Young Turks, uh, like Tim Black, like Kyle Kalinske, more popular. You can't inform the public while looking out for the interests of corporations. So this is why independent, non-corporate funded media is on the rise. So we are now one month into Donald Trump's presidency and it's going exactly as I would have expected a Donald Trump presidency to go it's a complete disaster. Now, the question is, am I wrong? Because apparently, according to Donald Trump, he's actually doing a great job. We have made incredible
4: progress. I don't think there's ever been a president elected who in this short period of time has done what we've done. See,
1: Donald Trump is perfect, and this is because anytime we see something going wrong in his administration it 's not because of donald trump it 's because of his staff members now Donald Trump isn't entirely wrong because when he says that we 've done quite a bit with his administration, uh he has done quite a bit, but he hasn't made progress in fact, he 's been one of the most regressive presidents in American history because the things that he 's done. They're just really harmful. So in his first week, he revived the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines, and he silenced the EPA. Now, he also froze any new regulations from Obama that were still pending, and we just learned that the bumblebee was added to the endangered species list for the first time ever. Now, the bumblebee species has declined by 87% over the last two decades. And saving the species is now in jeopardy because of Donald Trump. So IFL Science explains Trump's executive order has frozen for 60 days all federal regulations yet to be implemented, citing the need to review questions of facts, law, and policy they raise. This came just a single day before the bumblebee was to be officially listed by the Fish and Wildlife Service, something that would have given the creature full protection. Now, in his second week as president, he triggered a constitutional crisis by unilaterally instituting an unconstitutional Muslim ban. Now, in his third week, he indicated that he would withdraw from a nuclear arms treaty between the United States and Russia, and this is problematic because it could catalyze a new nuclear arms race between both countries. Now, he also found found out that he's still in control of his businesses. And I mean, now that he's been the president for a month, this last week has been as chaotic for him as ever, potentially. Now, currently, there's a lot of really harmful policies that Donald Trump is still pushing through, but the media isn't really talking about it because they're now fixated on the Russia story, which I'll get to in a different segment. They're also fixated on General Flynn's resignation. They're also fixated on Andrew Puzder uh, withdrawing his bid to be Labor secretary. So, you know, the politics of it all, that's more sensationalist and they can get more uh, views. They can make more money on advertisements if they talk about that. But I want to talk about what. Donald Trump is doing that's actually pretty harmful, because he's still doing things behind the scenes that we're not talking about that I have to talk about. So first of all, he provided the oil and gas industry with a really big gift by lifting corruption rules. So The Guardian explains, Donald Trump moved on Tuesday to expunge rules aimed at forcing oil companies to disclose payments made to foreign governments in order to secure lucrative mining and drilling rights. The rules, called the Cardin-Lugar regulations, were established under the Dodd-Frank Act, the wide-ranging financial regulations brought in after the last financial crisis. Energy industry executives, including the former Exxon boss and now Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, have lobbied hard against the rules, arguing it gives global rivals a competitive edge. The rules are actually aimed to fight corruption, and critics charge that Tuesday's move handed an astonishing gift to the American oil lobby. Now, he also overturned resol- Resolution 38, which is a regulation that prohibited coal mining companies from dumping debris in rivers and streams. So he's making it legal for them to pollute our water supply. Now I rarely give Donald Trump credit, but uh I did commend him in his second week for choosing to leave an executive order from Obama intact that prohibits companies with federal government contracts from discriminating against LGBT employees. Well, as of this week, that's now in jeopardy because people within his own administration are undermining him. So Pink News explains, despite Trump's assurances, it emerged over the weekend that newly confirmed Attorney General Jeff Sessions has pulled the federal government's legal support for Obama administration's anti-discrimination protections for transgender students. And this was one of his first acts as Attorney General. Now, people will say, Mike, why don't you blame jeff sessions for this and not donald trump well donald trump knew about jeff sessions past he has a horrible anti-lgbt record he has a terrible racial record so by making him your attorney general well you're complicit with anything that he does you're responsible for it, donald trump and donald trump has not spoken out against this move by uh, jeff sessions so i'm sorry This falls under the responsibility of Donald Trump. Now, speaking of civil rights, Donald Trump had a bad week because uh, the FBI released files that were really embarrassing to Donald Trump that proved that he does have a racist past. So, Politico explains that the FBI has released nearly 400 pages of records on an investigation that the Bureau conducted in the 1970s into alleged racial discrimination in the rental of apartments from President Donald Trump's real estate company. The files detailed dozens of interviews the Bureau conducted with Trump-building tenants— management and employees, seeking indications that minority tenants were steered away from housing complexes. Most of those interviewed said that they were not aware of any discrimination, however, some of the records recount the stories of black rental applicants who said they were told no apartments were available, while whites sent to check on the same apartments were offered leases. Now, when it comes to the Arab-Israeli conflict, well, during his campaign, Donald Trump said that he would act to uh, negotiate a peace deal between Palestine and Israel. And now uh he he's kind of starting to change his tune. So people are giving him credit because he very tepidly told Benjamin Netanyahu to hold back on the illegal settlements for a while.
4: As far as settlements, I'd like to see you hold back on settlements for a little bit. Uh, we'll uh, work something out, but I would like to see a deal be made. I think a deal will be
1: made. Now, that request, regardless of how feckless it was, was immediately contradicted because Donald Trump is now indicating that he's backing away from a two-state solution. I'm not kidding. So he stated, So I'm looking at two state and one state, and I like the one that both parties like. Trump said, as Netanyahu audibly chuckled, I'm very happy with the one that both parties like. I could live with either one. I thought for a while that two state looked like it may be the easier of the two, but honestly, if Bibi and if the Palestinians, if Israel and the Palestinians are happy, I'm happy with the one that they like the best. So make no mistake he's backing away from a two-state solution. If you even just waver on that a little bit, you're backing away from a two-state solution. And you're also going against 15 years of U.S. policy on Israel and Palestine. Uh, And... Let me ask you this. Why would you tell Netanyahu to hold back on the illegal settlements if you're going to say you support a one-state solution? Why would Palestine be in favor of a one-state solution? Because if Israel is able to become a a state that encompasses Palestine, that's basically one big illegal settlement. settlement. So, (laughs) I mean... He doesn't know what he's doing here. He said he wants to negotiate a peace deal. He even reiterated that he wants to negotiate a peace deal. But do you think you're going to be able to do that now after the Palestinians heard you talk about saying you'd support a one-state solution that they obviously would not be in favor of? This is unbelievable. You are doing more harm than good when you initially stated that you intended to help out the situation. You wanted to defuse the situation and assuage some of the violence. This guy does not know what he's doing. So, I mean, within the first four weeks of Donald Trump's presidency, he's done an incredible amount of damage. And my question is, why are you even here still? Because apparently, Melania Trump certainly is not happy. She is reportedly miserable in her role as first lady. Uh, And also... Donald Trump apparently is not too happy either. Morale is low, there's factionalism between him and his staff, and his staff apparently looks exhausted according to reporters and people that meet with his staff. Look, given that we all know that you didn't expect yourself to actually become president when you launched your presidential campaign, you ran your campaign because you thought that it would be, uh, you know, lucrative, you thought that it would be a great launching point for a TV network or something, or maybe a book deal, and look, that that's true. But you never expected to win and clearly you don't like it. You're not happy. So why stay? You have historically low approval ratings and nobody likes you. Only 25% of the country voted for you. That means 75%, the overwhelming majority of the country voted against you. So why? Why stay? Do us all a favor and leave. Now, I'm not saying that Mike Pence is less harmful. I actually think politically he's more harmful than Donald Trump. But I mean, if Donald Trump is not happy and he's just fucking everything up, why would you stay? Just resign. It'll be a disaster. It'll be embarrassing. But the quicker that we can forget about you, the better it'll be for all of us and uh, presumably you as well. So, as an anti-war progressive, I am always doing my best to make sure that we never unnecessarily escalate tensions with other countries. I think that we should always push for diplomacy over militarism, but unfortunately for me, peace isn't profitable, and what the military-industrial complex typically wants, it gets. Now, The problem that I'm seeing recently in the media is that they are sensationalizing every story about Russia, and we have a political establishment, both parties, who are hellbent on escalating tensions with Russia. This could catalyze a new Cold War. It's very dangerous. So I want to talk about all of this Russian hysteria. So we're now in the second round of Russian hysteria. And the first round began when Hillary Clinton alleged that Russian hackers hacked into the emails of the DNC and John Podesta, and they released these emails to the public via WikiLeaks because they wanted to influence the election and tip the scales in favor of Donald Trump. Now, this is problematic, first of all, because there's no way of really assessing the extent to which this hack actually influenced the election at all. I think Hillary Clinton lost because she couldn't mobilize her own base and didn't even campaign in the Rust Belt, hence why she lost in the Rust Belt. Now, second of all, WikiLeaks maintains that Russia didn't give them this information and that they obtained the DNC emails from a DNC insider. And there's also reports that John Podesta's emails were released when he fell victim to a phishing scam. Yet, almost all media outlets characterized the event as a Russian election hacking, which led almost half of Democratic Party voters to believe that they literally hacked into our voting booths. That's not true. Now, finally, even if we can prove that Russia did hack into the DNC and John Podesta's emails, that doesn't diminish the substance and overt corruption that was revealed in those emails. So, I mean, the first round of Russian hysteria was completely nonsensical to me, and I thought that the media, in sensationalizing that story— They misled the public, and here we are again with a new round of Russian hysteria. Now, this second round of Russian hysteria was catalyzed by two stories. First of all, uh, General Flynn's resignation over a leak that revealed he lied about the fact that he was in contact with the Russian ambassador and specifically discussed lifting sanctions. Now, the second reason why we have a new round of Russian hysteria is because a story from the New York Times revealed that Trump's campaign aides had repeated contacts with Russian intelligence. So, my take on this story is a lot different than the analyses that you'll hear in the mainstream media. And look, whenever I cover Russia, I get a ton of hate because I've been accused of being a Trump, a trumpeter, or a Russian shill, uh, or that I'm shilling for the Kremlin. This isn't true. My position on this is influenced by the facts or lack thereof. And by not wanting to escalate tensions with Russia unnecessarily, when we don't have the evidence that we need to do so. Now, when it comes to uh, General Flynn's resignation, I think that that was acceptable. He lied to the public. He deceived the vice president. Yeah, you should have resigned. Uh, and when it comes to the New York Times story, well, the underlying implication here. uh, in all of the media not just the new york times is that the reason why this is problematic the reason why donald trump's aides having contact with russian intelligence is scary is because well most likely they were colluding to tip the scales against Hillary Clinton. Now, let me just say this. It's not unusual for campaigns to have contact with foreign governments. Trump's campaign had contact with multiple countries, uh, and Hillary Clinton's campaign also had contact with multiple countries. But to state or imply that Trump's campaign and Russia colluded to tip the scales against Hillary Clinton— well, that's not true. And the initial New York Times story that everyone is now sensationalizing doesn't even say that. They explain the intelligence agencies then sought to learn whether the Trump campaign was colluding with the Russians on the hacking or other efforts to influence the election. The officials interviewed in recent weeks said that so far, they had seen no evidence of such cooperation. But that doesn't stop members of the Democratic Party establishment from making this jump and suggesting that contact does imply that they were colluding. willing to say the word collusion,
2: because I think that the public evidence that is there at the moment certainly, to me, predicts that it would lead to that that, that likely outcome um, or discovery, and an independent bipartisan investigation is what is absolutely essential to get to the bottom of it."
1: Now, even though it's tempting to listen to what Debbie Wasserman Schultz has to say, given that she's an expert on election rigging and collusion, the fact is that, as of yet, we don 't have facts to valid- to validate uh, this position and hillary clinton 's campaign manager Robbie Mook is saying the same thing
6: we 've got to understand what these communications were uh, between donald trump 's aides on the campaign uh, and Russian intelligence uh, officials you know we 'd been saying from the beginning that the Russians were the ones who stole the information from the DNC put it out to WikiLeaks. Uh, There's a real question now, were members of Donald Trump's campaign uh, aiding, abetting, or encouraging uh, this to take place? I think we also need answers from Donald Trump. He said to the media that there was no coordination, and what we learned uh, in the New York Times report and from CNN, uh, was that he was briefed by intelligence officials about, uh, about these connections. So he must have known and, and yet decided to, to lie, not tell the truth. So we but need to get to the bottom of that.
2: But of course the communication and coordination, those are two very different things that gets to the content of these conversations, with we, which we do not know. If it would come out, Robbie, that it was all, it, these were benign conversations and there was no aiding and abetting, as you said, what then?
6: Well, I think that's where we need to know the specifics. I don't want to be hypothetical or one, about one thing or another. I can tell you okay. it is extremely strange to me that a member of any American presidential campaign would be speaking to Russian intelligence officials. And it's particularly bizarre given the fact that we know that Russian intelligence officials broke into the DNC and handed them to WikiLeaks for the purpose of hurting Hillary Clinton
1: and helping Donald Trump. They really want you to think that Donald Trump colluded with Russia to rig the election against Hillary Clinton. Now, this is after they deny that the DNC rigged the election against Bernie Sanders. But look, I want to be clear. In talking about how there's not enough evidence, uh, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. I'm not trying to defend Donald Trump. I don't like Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump is an imbecile. But my dislike of Donald Trump is less important to me than the political establishment and media trying to catalyze a new Cold War. I don't want to escalate tensions with Russia. Now, another angle to the story is that Trump is susceptible to blackmail of some sort and that, you know, Vladimir Putin has something on him that's getting him to uh, play ball with the Kremlin. But, I mean, many stories that suggested that Trump is being blackmailed, I mean, they were debunked. I mean, take the Golden Shower Gate, for example. This was a way that they wanted to unnecessarily attack Donald Trump or arbitrarily, I should say, attack Donald Trump. uh, And there was no evidence for it. I mean, it's really, really frustrating to see people falling over themselves to attack Donald Trump, even if the facts aren't there. I mean, we're becoming Republicans in the way that they attacked Hillary Clinton. This is becoming a new Benghazi, but for the left, if we want to attack Donald Trump, he's given us a million things to attack him for. We don't have to make jumps without the evidence. We can actually attack him on the policies that, that he's implementing that are harming the American people. Now, I do believe that Trump's aides were in contact with Russia. I believe that story because Donald Trump has business in Russia. And he has businesses in other countries like Saudi Arabia and Dubai. So, I mean, when the mainstream media hears that his campaign had constant contact with Russia, they think that this is a sign that he colluded with the Kremlin to win the election and uh, rig the election against Hillary Clinton. But, I mean, when I hear this, I think it's a sign of corruption. Donald Trump is likely in contact with Russia because Donald Trump is looking out for his business interests. Now, that's still problematic, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's a Russian puppet, which is a dangerous assumption. Now, we know that Donald Trump discusses his business as head of state because when he was on the phone with the president of Argentina, he wanted to talk about the construction of of a building in Buenos Aires, and he was hoping that he can get the president to push it through because it was currently pending. Now, we also know that when uh, Nigel Farage called to congratulate him after he won the election, he asked Farage to oppose a wind farm that was being built near one of his golf courses in the UK. So, I mean, I think it's pretty likely that Donald Trump is in contact with countries around the world to ensure that the money train keeps rolling in. And this is a huge conflict of interest. It's an impeachable offense. But, I mean, to suggest that Donald Trump is being blackmailed or that he's working for Vladimir Putin. (laughs) Again, I think that this is really dangerous for a number of reasons. Now, to be fair to the people that are suggesting that there's collusion going on here, well, Donald Trump hasn't done anything to ameliorate these claims. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails
4: that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded
1: mightily by our press. Obviously, this is one of the dumbest things you could say. If people are already accusing you of uh, of being a shill for the Kremlin, you're adding more fuel to the fire. You're giving them ammunition to use against you, idiot. So I think that Donald Trump doesn't help the situations and he lacks self-awareness. But I really want to explain to you why all of this is dangerous. So tensions between the U.S. and Russia have already been pretty tense. I mean, in 2014, Russia annexed Crimea. That was illegal. And then, as of late, well, the United States, in cooperation with NATO, is lining up troops on the Russian border. So, I mean, tensions are high and the situation is delicate. Yet, I mean, some mainstream media outlets like the Washington Post, they're literally telling Donald Trump, look, if you're not a puppet of Vladimir Putin, then prove it. So, here's what's going to happen. And what I feared is going to happen is already happening. In the mainstream media, And uh, the political establishment's attempts at baiting Donald Trump to be tougher on Vladimir Putin, they are going to lead to the escalation of tensions between the United States and Russia. Now, I'm not saying that we don't show strength and that we cower in fear with Russia, but I'm saying that we don't need to unnecessarily poke a beehive when we don't have evidence to suggest... Uh, that whatever one is accusing Russia of is actually true, and when we have a madman who's in control of the presidency, who's in control of the military, do we really want to poke that guy and influence him to be tougher on a nuclear superpower? I mean, just last week, I talked about how Donald Trump is signaling that he's going to back out of a nuclear treaty with Russia that limits the stockpile of nuclear weapons between the United States and Russia. Now, this was an agreement that was negotiated by President Obama and Vladimir Putin, and it's an agreement that Vladimir Putin wants to keep intact. Yet, on President Trump's first phone call with Putin, he basically told Putin to shove that deal. And during the campaign, he talked about how this was a bad deal for the United States. So, I mean, again, if you really want to push Donald Trump to be... Tough on Russia, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. Here's the thing, I don't want a new Cold War. And I certainly don't want a new Cold War under President Donald Trump. The bottom line is that this is the really dangerous game that we're all playing, and I want to share something that Dennis Kucinich recently said that I think is really important.
0: This isn't about whether you're for or against Donald Trump. Right. Hello? Mm-hmm. This is about whether or not the American people are are bystanders in a power play inside the intelligence community, the outcome of which could determine our relationships with Russia and whether or not billions of dollars are going to be spent in a new Cold War. And at the bottom of that is, is money, is an agenda for somebody to cash in on conflict between the US and Russia
1: at any level. So let me just end with this. Progressives like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have even gotten on board with this story, and Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren, they've called for investigations into Donald Trump. That's fine. I'm fine with that. I'm always going to be on the side of more information and not less. However, I think this investigation is going to reveal like I'm speculating that Donald Trump is corrupt, not that he's working for the Kremlin or that he's a puppet of Putin. And I think that when you keep maintaining this narrative, it's really dangerous. Now, the media talks about this, not because the media really cares about the story. The media is sensationalizing the story because sensationalism sells. It's profitable. They make money off of this story. And when they fearmonger, well, I mean, the ratings go up and the progressives like myself who oppose all of this saber-rattling and sensationalism against Russia. We're not doing it because we're Kremlin shills. Kremlin we're not doing this because we like Donald Trump. I've been very critical of Donald Trump. I don't need to prove that I don't like Donald Trump, and I've held him accountable. But we're doing this because... This is very scary. It's dangerous. Russia and the United States do not need to be at odds with each other. We need to do everything in our power to repair our relationship with Russia. Now, that doesn't mean that we allow Russia to get away with everything. And it doesn't mean that we don't show strength. But I'm saying that we don't be reckless. We don't be stupid. We don't push a madman who's unhinged to take on Vladimir Putin, to denounce uh, denounce Vladimir Putin, to prove to us that he's not a puppet of Vladimir Putin. It's dangerous. Stop it. I wanted to share a story with you guys written by Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept, and as usual, he does a fantastic job at really shedding light on a complex issue. So he talks about General Flynn's resignation, which was due to a leaker, and he reveals how both political parties are completely hypocritical. So he states, General Michael Flynn was forced to resign on Monday night as a result of getting caught lying about whether he discussed sanctions in a December telephone call with a Russian diplomat. The only reason the public learned About Flynn's lie is because someone inside the US government violated the criminal law by leaking the contents of Flynn's intercepted communications. In the spectrum of crimes involving the leaking of classified information, publicly revealing the contents of SIGINT signals intelligence is one of the most serious felonies. Yet, very few people are calling for a criminal investigation or the prosecution of these leakers, nor demanding the leakers step forward and face the music for very good reasons. The officials leaking this information acted justifiably, despite the fact that they violated the law. That's because the leaks revealed that a high government official General Flynn blatantly lied to the public about a material matter, his conversations with Russian diplomats, and the public has the absolute right to know about this. This episode underscores a critical point. The mere fact that an act is illegal does not mean it is unjust or even deserving of punishment. Oftentimes, the most just acts are precisely the ones that the law prohibits. Over the last eight years, President Obama implemented the most vindictive and aggressive war on whistleblowers in all of U.S. history. It's hard to put into words how strange it is to watch the very same people from both parties across the ideological spectrum who called for the heads of Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, Tom Drake, and so many other Obama-era leakers. Today, he preys on those who leak the highly sensitive, classified, syngent information that brought down General Flynn. It's even more surreal to watch Democrats act as though lying to the public is some grave-firing offense when President Obama's national security official, James Clapper, got caught red-handed not only lying to the public, but also to Congress about a domestic surveillance program that courts ruled was illegal. And despite the fact that lying to Congress is a felony, he kept his job until the very last day of the Obama presidency. But this is how political power and the addled partisan brain in D.C. functions— Those in power always regard leaks as a heinous crime, while those out of power regard them as a noble act. They seamlessly shift sides as their position in D.C. changes. Indeed, while Democrats have suddenly rediscovered the virtues of illegal leaking, Trump-supporting Republicans are insisting that the only thing that matters is rooting out the criminal leakers, and Trump himself today, echoing Obama-era Democrats, said that the real story isn't the lies told by his national security advisor, but rather the the fact that someone leaked the information exposing them. Leaks are illegal and hated by those in power and their followers, precisely because political officials want to hide evidence of their own wrongdoing and want to be able to lie to the public with impunity and without detection. That's the same reason the rest of us should celebrate such illegal leaks and protect those who undertake them, often at great risk to their own interests, so that we can be informed about the real actions of those who wield the greatest power. That principle does not change based on which political party controls the White House. So everyone is a hypocrite. And Donald Trump, now that he's in the hot seat, well, we have to highlight his hypocrisy. During the campaign, he said this. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails
4: that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press.
1: And now he's saying this.
4: We're going to find the Lakers. (laughs) They're going to pay a big price
1: for leaking so, I mean, as citizens, we have no horse in this race. Partisan politics in Washington, D.C., well, they do it to the detriment of the American people. They play partisan politics and they bicker based on party lines because, you know, uh, you have to be on a team. But we don't have to be on a team. We could be consistent and we can always back whistleblowers. These are people like Edward Snowden, uh, Chelsea Manning. They put their lives on the line. They sacrificed their freedom so that way we can be educated about the wrongdoings of our government. And, you know, what really hurts is that Edward Snowden, he really made the the ultimate sacrifice. Also, Chelsea Manning did. And, you know, the, the leaks... People don't really care about them. They don't care that the government is spying on people. I think that John Oliver did a fantastic segment on this where he interviewed Edward Snowden, and he interviewed people, and he said, you know, do you care about these leaks? And many people, they didn't care. Now, again, these are anecdotal examples, but I think, by and large, if the public really did care about these leaks, well, then they would be putting pressure on the government. But, I mean, this program where the NSA collects metadata... It's going on. It's continuing. There's been, there's been, uh, there's no changes to it. So it's so, so frustrating that we have an American populace that's just completely apathetic to the wrong things that our government is doing, to the violations of the constitution. So, you know, I think that this story, it really shows why the American people need to stop buying in to this partisan bickering, and we need to be protective of people who, put their lives and their freedom in jeopardy to make sure that we know what our government officials are doing and to make sure that we have the ability to hold them accountable because we have the information to do so. So last week, I talked about how Republican lawmakers across the country at town halls are getting lambasted by their constituents because they're putting forth egregious policy positions that are harmful to their very constituents, who they're supposed to be representing. So, for example, I mean, many of their constituents are concerned that they're still planning to repeal the Affordable Care Act, even though they've proposed no adequate replacement. So with that being said, I'm happy to report that this is still going on. They're still receiving hell and backlash and boos across the country. And we're getting a more clear picture uh, as to how this is impacting them. And they hate it. So enjoy. Just by watching the very end of Republican
0: Congressman Jason Chavez's town hall, you can tell how it all went. The Utah Republican was also booed before he even said a word when he took the stage. And in the midst of the event in the Salt Lake City suburb of Cottonwood Heights.
1: Easy, easy please, please, come on. Come on, we're better please.
0: The kind of reception he's not accustomed to in a reliably Republican state. And in a district he won with about three quarters of a vote. Republican politicians facing fiery backlashes at Republican town halls. From Utah. To Tennessee. At this town hall, sponsored by the College Republicans at Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, much angered that the town hall auditorium only had a capacity for 78 people. We've had previous events where we were let in even though there were fire codes and we sat on the stairs. If we don't get it,
1: shut shut it down. down!
0: Inside, three state legislators and Congressman Diane Black the current acting chair of the House Budget Committee.
1: We're going to um, repeal the Affordable Care Act, and we're going to replace it with something that is going to be good for the American people.
0: For the most part, that statement didn't go over so well.
1: I I can't put all my trust in someone saying, we're going to make a plan, but we've had six years and we don't have a plan. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
0: Good question.
3: Besides the, the the quote
2: that was by the president that if you like your plan you can keep it, which was one of the greatest lies of the of our oh, time. Give it up. Um, the, on to the question. Was, the second
1: was that the Republicans don't have a plan. As a matter of fact, um, Paul Ryan had a plan even before the Affordable Care Act. Um, Where was
0: it? Oh. Even for some of the people in the crowd who don't like Obamacare, the unhappiness. Together, there's no new plan ready to go.
1: You're sitting in the chair. What's the hold up? Uh, the hold up is that we want to
2: do it right.
0: This past weekend, California Republican Congressman Tom McClintock left his town hall early. A gauntlet of police surrounding him, offering him protection. After he too found, he had plenty of angry constituents.
1: Now my favorite part about that is that I love how their constituents are yelling at them and basically fact-checking them in real time. And if they are saying something that is wrong, they just yell, bullshit!"
2: Oh, give it up. Get on to the question.
1: Now imagine if we had a mainstream media that did this to uh, politicians. They allow politicians to just drone on unchecked. Uh, they can espouse false things Uh, they can just straight up lie and they go unchecked a lot of the time so imagine if the mainstream media did this then we wouldn't have to have constituents do this but nonetheless i think this is great now i want to share with you a little bit more from uh, diane black's uh town hall
6: i have to have coverage in order to make sure that i don't die there are people who have cancer that have that coverage that have to have that coverage to make sure that they don't die and you want to take away this coverage, and have nothing to replace it with? As
0: a Christian, my whole uh, uh, philosophy in life is pull up the unfortunate. Yes. Okay. So the individual mandate—that's what it does. The healthy people pull up the sick. Yes. We are effectively punishing our sickest people, mm-hmm. and I want to know why not? Instead of fix what's wrong with Obamacare, why don't we expand Medicaid? And, and make have
1: everybody have insurance. So there's nothing I love more than people getting involved in the political process. And I think that part of me wanting to start this podcast to begin with was to encourage people to pay attention and get more involved. So what I want you to do is go to your representative's website and find out when they're doing a town hall. And I want you to be there. I don't care if they're Democrat. I don't care if they're Republican. You need to go there and you need to voice your concerns because you are paying for their salary. And if you are paying for their salary, through your tax dollars, then you deserve adequate representation. Yes, you. So please find out when your representative or senator is holding a town hall meeting and show up and hold them accountable like these folks are doing here. I think it's great. And here's one other thing I want to say. I don't want to just encourage you to get involved by showing up to town halls, even though I think this is crucial. I want people to really consider running for Congress. If you think that your congressperson is just so corrupt, so far gone, that nothing you can say or do is going to convince them to actually represent the interests of you because they're so beholden to their corporate interests, I want you to run for office. You can do that through Justice Democrats. I think that would be a great way to do it. But if you run for office, you can make a difference. And look, I'm not just saying that to be corny and, you know, espouse a platitude. Why can't you run for office? I mean, look at some of the people who we've elected. Louis Gohmert. This guy probably has the IQ of a turtle. And no offense to turtles. Actually, I think that may be incorrect. I think turtles are probably smarter than Louis Gomer, And I have no idea why I just brought up a turtle. But I mean, (laughs) the president is Donald Trump. I think that his IQ is probably the equivalent of four people combined. So if these idiots can run and become successful in politics, then why can't you? Why can't you? What's the excuse? If you have any inclination that you think you would be good and you could represent the people, then do it. Do it. You know, th- don't think about it, just do it. Run. You know, find out now how to file papers because 2018 is coming up, so you need to start looking into that right now. Do it. Y- you know, if you're progressive, you can make a change. So, look, continue to show up and give them hell uh make calls to their offices every single day and look run for office this is us getting involved this is the political revolution that bernie sanders catalyzed actually coming to fruition we're making a difference and they are accountable to us because we're holding them accountable and the minute that we slack off they're going to go back to doing terrible things so keep up the pressure and look this is great i hope this story puts a smile on your face because this made me really happy The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and other water protectors have been relentless in their protest against the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline now for months because they have a very simple argument. Water is life, and this pipeline— Threatens water and therefore threatens life. Now, I want to talk about how the Dakota Access Pipeline protesters have been treated because throughout the course of this protest, they've been met with nothing but abuse. They've been hit with concussion grenades, pepper spray, cold water and freezing weather conditions. They've been harassed and assaulted by militarized police. They've been intimidated and attacked by the guard dogs of armed mercenaries. One protester almost lost her arm. Another lost vision in one of her eyes. And a protester named Red Fawn was falsely accused of illegally firing a weapon and she now faces 20 to life in prison. And look, let me remind you, these are things that are happening in this country. This isn't occurring in some third world authoritarian country. These are happening right here at home. So, this is really troubling and, you know, with the way that they've been treated, I think that it's time that we launch an investigation into the police here and the energy company because... This is not right. Their civil liberties are being violated. They have a right to protest. They are peacefully protesting. They've done nothing wrong, yet they are being abused. So finally, the FBI is actually launching an investigation. Now, before you breathe a sigh of relief or applaud this effort, they're not investigating who they should be investigating. They're literally investigating the Standing Rock protesters, not the oil company, not the police who have been abusing said protesters. And the worst part is that they're treating them as though they're domestic terrorists. Peaceful protesters as domestic terrorists. So, The Guardian explains, The FBI is investigating political activists campaigning against the Dakota Access Pipeline, diverting agents charged with preventing terrorist attacks to instead focus their attention on indigenous activists and environmentalists. The Guardian has established that multiple officers within the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force have attempted to contact at least three people tied to the Standing Rock Water Protector Movement in North Dakota. The purpose of the officers' inquiries into Standing Rock and scope of the task force's work remains unknown. The agency officials declined to comment, but the fact that the officers have even tried to communicate with activists is alarming to free speech experts who argue that anti-terrorism agents have no business scrutinizing protesters. The idea that the government would attempt to construe this indigenous-led, non-violent movement into some kind of domestic terrorism investigation is unfathomable to me, said Lauren Regan, a civil rights attorney who has provided legal support to demonstrators who were contacted by representatives of the FBI. It's outrageous, it's unwarranted, and it's unconstitutional. Now, one of the most outrageous parts about the story is that the girl who almost lost her arm, Sofia Wolanski, well, her dad thinks that they actually brought, like the FBI brought in a a terrorism agent to talk to her and investigate her potentially. He, He doesn't know for sure if it was a terrorism agent, but he... Brought in someone who appeared to be a terrorism agent, uh, and they tried to question her as she was being wheeled into surgery. I honestly, I have no words. I have I have no words. The abuse that the water protectors and the Standing Rock Sioux tribe has gone through, it's heartbreaking to me. And its it was really difficult for me to kind of prepare and do research for the story because I don't know what to say anymore. I don't know what to say. The United States has a history of brutalizing and violating the rights of Native Americans and we're doing nothing to right those wrongs. It's sickening to me. It, It really is. And I think that when we see stories like this, this is evidence that little by little we're sliding into authoritarianism. Now, let me be clear, we're not an authoritarian country, even though our government and police forces, you know, state-sanctioned officials, they do use authoritarian tactics. I mean, we're better off than people in um, Uganda, in Mexico, but we shouldn't have to say that, well, we're better than this country, so we don't have to complain. The United States purports to be a beacon of freedom, and if we take away the rights of peaceful protesters to organize, and we treat them like terrorists, then what makes America great is no longer there. We're not a good country, then, if we do that. We're stripping ourselves of a a principle that's fundamental. We should be able to organize and protest if we disagree with something that's happening in the country. So I don't know what to say. Civil rights organizations are the groups in the country that you would expect to be the most in favor of freedom, of justice, of equality, But according to a news story published in The Intercept by Lee Fong, that's actually not the case when it comes to the issue of net neutrality. So, he states, "...leading civil rights groups, who for many years have been heavily bankrolled by the telecom industry, are signaling their support for Donald Trump's promised rollback of the Obama administration's net neutrality rules, which prevent internet service providers from prioritizing some content providers over others." In a little notice joint letter released last week, the NAACP, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, OCA, formerly known as the Organization for Chinese Americans, the National Urban League, and other civil rights organizations sharply criticized the jurisdictional and classification problems that plagued the last FCC, a reference to the legal mechanism used by the Obama administration to accomplish net neutrality. Instead of classifying broadband as a public utility, the letter states, Open Internet rules should be written by statute. What does that mean? It means the Republican-led Congress should take control of the process, the precise approach that is favored by industry. None of the civil rights groups that signed the joint letter responded to a request for comment. Last week's letter was organized by Multicultural Media, Telecom, and Internet Council, a group funded by the telecom industry that has previously encouraged civil rights groups to oppose net neutrality. MMTC in previous years reported receiving about a third of its budget from industry-sponsored events. Its annual summit, which was held last week, was made possible by $100,000 in sponsorships from Comcast and AT&T as well as a $75,000 sponsorship from Charter Communications and Verizon. MMTC, which acts on the needs of telecom lobbyists, has been accused of AstroTurf lobbying by creating the appearance of grassroots support for the industry. The civil rights group opposed to net neutrality have employed several arguments against the proposal. In one filing made in 2010, the NAACP signed onto an agreement from MMTC that net neutrality reforms were a waste of resources because the FCC should focus on more pressing racial discrimination and exclusionary hiring and promotion practices of certain Silicon Valley high-tech companies. In a separate filing in 2014, MMTC and the NAACP argued that reclassification would threaten the fragile state of minority engagement. In the digital ecosystem. Kim Keenan, the president of MMTC, the group that organized the joint letter, has showered pie with praise. He is really focused on closing the digital divide as an advocate. I feel so much pride that this is a priority for his chairmanship, Keenan told Multichannel News, a trade outlet. So they're harming people who they're claiming to fight for this is unbelievable now the cr- the question here is why the hell would the naacp and these organizations who we love and look up to and who've done great work in the past why would they be in favor of this well with all things in government follow the money so while advocating against net neutrality the organizations on the joint letter have raked in money from the telecom industry the naacp which signed letters opposing net neutrality both times the rule was proposed by the obama administration has named at&t verizon and comcast as corporate fundraising partners after the naacp endorsed comcast's merger with nbc Comcast disclosed that the NAACP was one of the recipients of $1.8 billion in funds doled out to various community groups. The Asian-American groups on the letter, including OCA and Americans Advancing Justice, have similar ties to the largest telecom firms, Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, and the National Cable and Telecommunications Association, a trade group for the telecom industry. They're listed as members of the Corporate Alliance of Donors Funding AAJC. Comcast and Verizon sponsored OCA's annual gala last year. National Urban League received 1.2 million from Verizon in 2014 alone, as the Center for Public Integrity reported, senior officials from AT&T, Verizon, and Comcast have held positions on the National Urban League's board. So I found this to be one of the most disappointing stories to come out of 2017 so far because these are organizations that I look up to. I mean, we could be objective and say that in spite of this horrible move, they've done such great things in the past. This just shows that money can corrupt even the most altruistic organizations or seemingly altruistic organizations. So here's what we do. If money really gets them uh, to make decisions and um, reach policy positions, then I think that what you need to do is if you're funding these organizations, if you're donating to them, Withdraw your money, cancel your monthly donations to them because they don't deserve it. And maybe if enough people do this, that'll get them to pay attention. And when you cancel your donation, you need to tell them, I'm canceling specifically because you're against net neutrality. This would harm the people who are the most disadvantaged because we get our news from the internet, when the mainstream media they don't want to cover certain things. So if you make it so that way, Comcast can limit the bandwidth to uh, websites that are speaking out against shitty things that the government and the telecommunications industry are doing, then you're literally limiting information that harms democracy. So this is this is honestly just a horrific story to me. And look, I'm really glad that Li Fang was able to uh, point this out because I think that regardless if we respect these institutions for what they've done, this is so, this is completely wrong. This has to stop. Put pressure on them, reach out to them, email them, go on Facebook. Look, they have to listen because this cannot stand. They have a huge influence. And if they're going to use that power to do horrible things that screw over the people who they're supposed to be supporting, then it's time that we rein them in. So that's all I got for you guys, I want to thank you all for tuning in so loyally every single week. I want to welcome you to the channel if you're a newcomer, and I also want to thank members of the Independent Progressive Media Revolution. The patrons, uh, the members, people who donate via PayPal, you guys help us to not just survive but also to thrive and I really, really mean that. You guys are fantastic. And also anyone who watches and just shares our videos, you're really helping spread the progressive message. So look, next week will be the DNC chair election. We'll find out who's the new DNC chair and certainly uh, I'm probably going to have a lot to say about that uh, afterwards. Uh, But for now, hopefully I provided you with enough information that going into this, you know the implications uh, of whoever is elected. So I'll see you all next week. Have a great day.